Hi, I'm Bobby Luisi. Uh, it's great to be on Fly Fidelity today. Uh, we're going to talk about my uh, past in La Cosa Nostra. Actually, me and Paul Tanzo's past. He was a main guy on my crew. Uh, I'll tell you, this is going to be a great show. First, First I say, what we're going to do. Then you say, I don't know. What do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do. I have an idea. You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is, is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. Incredible content for incredible times. On this episode, we are joined for an intimate chat with former mob boss Robert Boston Bob Luisi. We're also joined by former maid man of the Philadelphia Mafia, Portanzo, for a deep dive into Mafia legacy and crime history. Enjoy the conversation. For the sake of contextualizing your story, I was wondering if we could navigate your starting point. What was Bobby Luisi like as a kid prior to being introduced to the life and becoming a made man? Well, you know, I had a good childhood. I was uh, born in the North then in a little Italy. And uh, my mother and father got divorced at a young age. And um, we moved to East Boston. And at that time, my mother met uh, my father, Santo. And she remarried. And, uh, you know, Santo was a great guy, Sicilian. And uh, he had a good work ethic, and uh, he used to want me to work after school. So 11, 12 years old, I started working at uh, Rome Vending, which was a front company for the Angelo family. That was the mafia family in Boston that ran everything. And uh, I worked for Ronnie Romanowski, and I did that for a few years. You know, and at that time, my father uh, was a street guy. He was all mobbed up, a gangster. And... uh, so, you know, from a child, I was around all these people. And actually, my father, Santo, was a bookmaker, loan shark. Uh, he has, you know, one foot on the street, too. So um, I just grew up all around us. You know, uh, I got introduced to everything pretty early in life. And uh, unfortunately, like 13, 14 years old, uh, I started wanting to work with uh, a cop at the name Jack. And I really, I really enjoyed that. You know, my family business, uh, the Luisi family, most of them were all at the construction. We had construction companies. So it's something I really enjoyed to do. And uh, I'd say till the age of 16, I was going to work after school with the carpenter. You know, he was teaching me everything. It was good. It was his apprentice. And um, I'd say around 16 years old, I moved back in the north there with my father in his building. And that's when I was really heavily introduced uh, into that mob life. I was around capos and soldiers. Who were some of the types of people you grew up with as a kid back then? You mentioned capos. What are the other people? Yeah, I grew up with capos and soldiers and, uh, you know, all the neighborhood guys around there. At that time, everybody was involved one way or another on the streets. You know, who was a bookmaker, who was a loan shark, made guys. You know, and it, it just influenced me for a while. You know, um, 
like I said, I wasn't really around the Angelo family. I was more around uh, Larry Bioni, who was maybe second in charge in Boston. And I was around his crew, Ralphie Chong, Johnny Ciccotti. And I felt at that time they were starting to groom me, uh, maybe to get into the life or just to be around them, you know. Right. And uh, it really was um, it, it really was something. You know, as you're going through it, you grew up in it. You don't realize actually what's happening at that point, if you understand what I'm saying. But uh, it was just a normal way of life to me. But what happened with me, I really enjoyed the carpentry work, so I kept pursuing that. You know, I quit school at 16, and I went to work full-time carpentry. And um, at that time, I was starting to push away from that uh, life a little and get involved more in the carpentry work. And I think I was 20 years old, I got my first builder's license. Uh, 23, I got my state license, and I started developing, uh, doing rehabs, apartment buildings, building condos. You know, I really enjoyed it. And of course, and you mentioned your dad already having a history. What are your strongest memories of his relationship with the Patriarchs? What was his role exactly? What did it, what did he do? My father was a, an enforcer, mostly. But my father was always into uh, strip joints, after-hour clubs with the liquor. You know, he had a lot of clout on the street. He was a tough guy, very well respected. Um, he would have probably got straightened out in the 80s if everybody didn't go away. And uh, then he was reproposed in the 90s. But uh, he got killed um, in 95. But my memories of my father, he was a tough guy, well-respected. You know, I was Bobby Luisi's son wherever I went. Everybody respected me. And, uh, you know, my father was an earner. You know, uh, there's not much uh, more I could say about him, actually. But, uh, yeah, my father was a bad guy. Bad guy. Let's talk about that. I mean, can you recall your father's involvement in crime having any impact on your relationship together growing up? Well, I would say um, not in the younger years. You know, he didn't mind me being around the guys, uh, you know that was that. You know that was his life, and he didn't, he didn't mind me uh, being around the guys at that age. Um, I thought he, he, when I started going on my own into the carpentry work, I think he wanted me around more. You know, but uh, like I said, my father was always with the heavy hitters, all these May guys, the Poles guy. Um, I think more when I came back uh, in 1990, and I stepped back on the street. I think our relationship started to get strained because of the things that I was doing on micro. You know, my father wasn't too crazy about that. Uh, I don't think he really wanted me on the street doing that, you know, unless I was directly under him. In, uh, in Boston in 1990, there was a law here, power struggle between the factions, and I was in the middle of it. And, you know, we were doing a lot of bad things, and my father wasn't too crazy about that. He wanted the Luisi family to kind of sit aside, let everybody destroy each other, you know, but unfortunately, I was in the middle of all of it, you know, and it going back out. And then our relationship started to strain at that point. Talk about some of those memories of being around that as a kid. I mean, what were they like, you know, being around those people and some of the things you experienced that first hand in the streets? Well, I'm, I'm on a start when I was about 16. I mean, you know, I was influenced from 11, 12 years old on. I told you I used to go to all the social clubs uh, on Saturdays and roll the dime machines. Uh, Frangiulo's company, Rome Vending, and uh, I was in the midst of all these guys every week. 
you know, seeing all the top echelon of organized crime in Boston and uh, being in all the social clubs and being around them. And it, it impressed me. It did, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I used to walk into big card games and everybody respected me. You know, it was nice when I was a kid. You know, it was Bobby Luisi's son. Um, and like I said, at about the age of 16, when I went back in the North End and uh, with my father, you know, I was hanging around them and we'd hang in uh, Bellinopoli Pizza. Uh, Johnny Chicotti and Ralphie Chong, La Matina, uh, were two soldiers in the Patriarca family. And we would be around them all the time, uh, hanging around in the pizza joint. You know, 16 years old, we had $150 shoes, $150 jeans on, shirts. You know, we always dressed nice. And uh, I'll tell you, it was something. It was something to see how uh, it was a learning experience to see how they treated everybody. Uh, I was taught from the old school guys to sit and observe. And I would watch how they would treat everybody, why they respect this one and why they didn't respect that guy. And uh, you start to learn. This is a part of the grooming process. And coming into the life of La Cosa Nostra. You know, you sit there, you be quiet, and you learn. You know, that's what I was taught from an early age. You mentioned observing. You mentioned, you know, learning, being around these guys. What was it that stuck out most to you in terms of what you experienced? What did you learn? Well, I, I'll tell you, I learned the life uh, from old timers, which was very important. And what it is is basically how to act, how to present yourself. You know, they start teaching you all of this. You know, never be outspoken, never talk out of turn. Make sure you're conscious of everybody in the room. Make sure you listen carefully to everybody, you know, and they start to teach you. It's kind of a, manip- a manipulation, and you start to learn how to manipulate different people from what they were doing. So if you sat there and watched, it's like going and watch a college professor. I'm sure you've been to college, my friend. Yeah. And, you, and you're just sitting there, you know, uh, true speaks, is speaking and everything, and, and you start learning. And it's basically the same thing. It's like a school, you know, and you got to sit there and learn. And then you learn afterwards, and then you can start applying it on the street. And, of course, if we're talking about the streets, there's a system attached, isn't there? What was the hierarchy in your neighborhood back then? Was it free capos and the underboss in your neighborhood and a cruise around them? Would that have been yes. the setup? Yes, exactly. That's what was there. Uh, Jerry and Julo was the underboss that Raymond Patriarca in Rhode Island. Boston was once the power base. And um, when Joe Lombardi retired years ago in the 50s, he gave it to Raymond Petriaca. Raymond Petriaca was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, but he ended up moving. I think at four years old, his family moved to Rhode Island. So when he took over the family, he based it in Rhode Island on Federal Hill, and he called it the office down there. And uh, Jerry was up in Boston, and Jerry was running everything up in Boston for him. Any way you want to look at it, the Angelo family were the bosses up here. You know, and under him was Larry Bione, Sammy Granito. Um, Danny and Julo was a captain up here. And they were all in the neighborhood most of the time. You know, the Capos uh, had different neighborhoods, like I did when I got older. So, you know, they move around. But Jerry was there every day. And I lived probably 10 houses down from Jerry's Club when I was a kid on Prince Street. So I'd see these guys every day. From the Independent News, this is USA Tonight with Brad Holbrook. 
Good evening. Today is Black Monday, the day the Dow dropped more than 500 points. The day the Dow dropped more than 22 percent, almost double the rate of the Black Monday that signaled the beginning of the crash of 1929. But this crash of 1987 is not just an American experience. Around the world, stock markets fell faster than a skydiver without a parachute. The panic starting in Tokyo this morning while the West slept. One cause of the sell-off was reaction to last week's 236-point drop in the Dow. The result, the Nikkei average was down 260 yen. Then, like a plague, sell fever headed West. You know, I watch these guys every day. I respected them. I looked up to them. But I also seen what they went through every day. And uh, I just, like I said, I enjoyed the carpentry work at the time. So when I came back to Boston, I was 30 years old, and, uh, you know, I had uh, the market went bad over here, real estate market. I lost all my houses, and I put a gun on my back, and I uh, went back on the street in 1990. So you're in a life now, and you're moving towards, like you say, this drug business and expanding into, you know, different areas like loan sharking and extortion and drug dealing. Was there anybody specifically you credit for motivating you to go that direction? Honestly, I, I have to credit myself with that. You know, I came back to the neighborhood uh, with two kids and $100 in my pocket, and I'm walking around. At that time, my family owned a barroom in the North End, so I was out on the street, and I'm seeing all these young guys all dressed up nice every day, driving beautiful cars. They all got money. All these kids were into the drug business, cocaine. So my first move, obviously, was to sashay some of them down, and then start learning the business. You know, I went from the little business with these guys on the street till I started a few years later, I was selling kilos. That money was uh, so abundant, I was starting to activate uh, other businesses. My loan shark business, my gambling, card right. clubs, whatever I could get uh, my hands into, that's what I did. Were you dropping off many different places during the peak of operation with the drugs? Yes, all the cities around Boston, you know, the major cities that were around us, I was selling to all of those cities. And it was mainly cocaine, I'm imagining. Cocaine and some marijuana, yeah. And were there ever struggles with different guys and crews who were selling drugs around the same time? Well, you know, what I always try to do, uh, I wasn't big at extortion, but I would grab and see who's moving around, and I tell them they have to deal with me now. You know, if they had their own thing going and doing good, I might shake them down for a little money every month. But mostly everybody worked with me. The business was so lucrative, I really didn't have to push up on people that much, if you understand what I'm saying. You know. And were you thinking about going bigger and making more money, or were you content with what you were already making? Well, at that time, I was making $68,000 a kilo. Wow. Yeah, you know, so I was very content with that. And that was just flipping the keys, and then I still kept some of the smaller business. Had one of my guys working it. Uh, it was just a lot of money coming in every week. And then building up my loan shock business and the gambling. Very lucrative. Is there any truth to what's often said about mobsters that deal drugs being frowned on? Was it commonplace back then? Or was there a rule well, that... They did come out with that. The commission came out with that rule, and um, you got to remember, all these old bosses have money when they decided to get out of the heroin business. But you know, the Bananos brought it back in with the Pizza Connection. 
they were still moving around up here. What they would do, like a main guy up here, would have a guy with him that was dealing. He'd be grabbing money from him, saying he had nothing to do with it. So oh. basically, it was all nonsense, my friend. Got you. Everybody went where the money was. So, so it wasn't necessarily a hard decision to make to sell drugs in a life? No, it wasn't. Well, we feel anything that's done on the street illegally belongs to us, no matter what it is. Right. And we want to get our hands on all of it. This is our cities. You know, we run them. You know, and I, I don't care what you're doing. You know, but we're going to want a piece of it, whether it's drugs, gambling. The only thing I never got into was prostitution and heroin. I didn't like those two things. I didn't want to be involved with them. But I did everything else. And of course, fast forward, there was the infamous mob hit in a Boston area restaurant in 95. You mentioned it briefly earlier. What do you remember about that? Well, my father, my brother, uh, my cousin Anthony, and my cousin Richard uh, and uh, Sonny Pelosi were shot that day in the 99 restaurant. And uh, my cousin Ricky survived. Four of them were killed. And the Clementes did it. Um, unfortunately, uh, Vinnie Perez was with the Clementes, uh, and Vinnie Perez was with me, and Damien Clemente were with me at the time of the shooting. So, uh, you know, it was a tough time. It was a tough day. It was sad. You know, I lost four people that day. I lost my father. But, uh, you know, it was street business. Things like this happen. You know. Is it true you could have been at the spot yourself that day? Well, Vinny and Damien asked me for lunch, to go down there for lunch, but I had a meeting. You know, I couldn't make the lunch that day. And, uh, you know, that maybe that was God's way to keep me out of it. Have you seen these paintings? They're worth half a billion dollars, and they disappeared 30 years ago. Whoever finds them will receive... A $10 million reward. But let's go back to the beginning. Isabella Stewart Cotton Museum was a artist's delight. Millions of dollars worth of artwork. Rembrandt, Degas, Vermeer. St. Patty's Day, 1990. Two men dressed as police officers show up at the door. And they say very dramatically, gentlemen, this is a robbery. There's no shortage of possible suspects. Boston was so wild west. The two front runners, well, the Italian mob, well, the Irish mob. Hey, how you doing? The mafia knew that having a stolen masterpiece is a get-out-of-jail-free card. The feds will deal with you. They'll let you out of jail. An easy, easy score, as they say on the street. There were 13 works taken. Most important, a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's the only Rembrandt seascape in existence. This was huge, not just locally, but internationally. In Dublin, stolen art was used by the IRA as an international currency. In Boston, Whitey Bulger provided the IRA with weapons. The painting could be in the Middle East. Japan. South America. What? It's mind-blowing. I've spent 25 years on this case. There's got to be a way to figure out where these paintings went. You could potentially get immunity. You could get $10 million. And that's why this case is so confounding. There's a lot of deaths. Everybody who apparently did the robbery is whacked. 
works of art connect to the community. Standing in front of that painting would be an unbelievable experience. When I see those frames, I feel that they are waiting for the work to come back. They're out there. Somebody stashed them. Sometimes it's the next generation. Grandpa's dead. Look what we got. <laughs> and what could he tell me about the Isabella Stewart Gardner museum theft, which you were said to have had something to do with in 1990? It's been talked about a lot, of course, in documentaries. It's been the subject of many documentaries in the past. But what could you tell us about that that hasn't been said? There's not too much I could tell you about that, but I'll, I'll give you a little more detail on that. They did a robbery in 1990, and uh, Bobby Garanti, um, and I met uh, Dave Turner, and I don't know if he was involved, but I know Bobby was. And uh, Bobby Garanti started coming around about 93. Uh, he did a piece of work for us, and um, I got really close with Bobby. Actually, when I was uh, putting my family together, um, I was going to make him my underboss. So that's how close a relationship I had with Bobby. And so we were up one of the safe houses one night, and uh, Miles Connor came on the TV. He was a big art thief over here. And uh, Bobby Garanti told me, we called a monk. I um, told me, he says, I know where the paintings are buried. Can we move them? Because at that time, we're in New York or Philadelphia, you know. But I really, I, I wasn't into that. I didn't know how to move them. Hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't um, pursue it. I wish I did now, you know, because I... They were buried under a slab in a house of Florida. We, the, the money we had, we could have bought the house, everything. Went down there and got them. But uh, like I said, I didn't know the value of it at the time. There was nothing that I could do with them, you know. So I let it go, unfortunately. And we're talking about the biggest art heist in the world, aren't we? In the world. Actually, Insane. I think they did an article on me in England. Oh, really? Well, that came out a few years ago, yeah. Which paper yeah, was I that? Yeah, I don't remember. I could look it up and uh, send it to you. Next to a bizarre twist in a cold case, the FBI identifying two suspects in the largest art heist in American history. The trouble is, the men are now dead. So now the new focus, who has the art they stole? Here's ABC's Ron Claiborne. Tonight, the FBI is saying this video could provide a major break in the biggest art heist ever. Investigators releasing this 25-year-old video for the first time and asking the public to help identify this man, seen here in a security room at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, the night before two thieves stole 13 pieces of art valued at half a billion dollars. We're thinking if we could find out who was involved, who did it, they might be able to lead us to where that art is. The two thieves, dressed in what looked like police uniforms, gained admittance to the museum at 1.15 in the morning, saying they were investigating a disturbance in the area. The FBI says it now believes those two died several years ago. What they want to know now is who this man was. They call him an unauthorized visitor. He entered the museum through the same door that the thieves used the next day, but left in a car that night, seen on a second surveillance video. Still missing today, a 3,000-year-old Chinese vase and 12 paintings, including works by Rembrandt, Monet, Degas, and Vermeer. The theft from the Gardner Museum is of international importance. It's probably the largest art theft in modern times. One theory, members of a team of thieves did a test run the night before. 
The museum is offering a $5 million reward for information that leads to the recovery of these works of art. It is hoping that making this video public will help. Ron Claiborne, ABC News, New York. So there's this big transition, isn't it, with the mob and what the mob was going through when you came back. What were some of the biggest changes at that time? Well, what happened, uh, you know, most of the guys that I grew up with, uh, by, I'd say, 91, 92, they were all arrested. You know, they picked them all up, Joe Russo, Vinny Ferrara, Bobby Carosa, uh, Anthony Spagnola, Joe Russo. They're all gone. And uh, there was a power struggle here because Frankie Salemi wanted the seat, and he kind of took it, you know. But at that point in the beginning, when I came back, my father was friends with Frankie and his brother Jackie was a capo. And uh, another very close friend of mine, who was my boss in the beginning, uh, was with Frankie. So I ended up with that uh, faction. Right. But really, um, nobody wanted uh, Frankie on that seat, so we ended up in a war over it with the other factions out there, with the old faction. And the war consists for about three years. A lot of people got killed up here. You know, it was very violent here in the 90s. But uh, praise God, I survived, and I came out on top. Um, what happened now, the Patriarca family was in disarray, and I didn't like what was going on, so I reached out to New York to uh, Peter Gotti. He was out at the time. He was the acting boss of the family. But uh, because of commission rules, even though there wasn't a commission, there was a sitting family in Boston, you know, we couldn't break that. So, you know, I wasn't able to go in with him. From there, I went down to Philadelphia, and I met Joey Molino. Mm -hmm. And after building a relationship with Joey and Georgie Borghese, they proposed me in the family, and they made me a couple in the family. And then I strained all, the, all my guys in Boston. So now I'm up here uh, in Boston with a big crew. Um, I don't know, with associates, everything, we probably had over 100 guys with us. Crazy. Maybe more. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. How long were you with the Petriacra family, and was it always as smooth a time standing with them as it was when you first got involved? Were there problems over the years? Well, you know, in the 80s and in the 70s when I was around them, there weren't many problems. You know, some guys were getting pinched, obviously, that's the life. Right. But they really, you know, they had full control here. Now, if those guys were on the street in the 90s, the wall wouldn't have happened, and I probably would have, because I was proposing the Patriarca family. You know, I would have ended up being in the Patriarca family. Maybe ended up becoming a captain in the family. Was was there any frustration that you didn't end up becoming a made man with the Patriarca family? Were you pissed at that time? Yeah, I, I actually, I was. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, I did my work. I made my bones. I did what I was supposed to do, right. you know. But then again, uh, at that time, like I said, it was a such in disarray, you know, who's struggling for power and leadership that it was probably better off that I stayed out of it for me, you know. So what's the process of building your own family after that, the Louisi family? Did you have a big crew, and what was the process of building your own family after that? Well, when I went down to Philly, and, uh, you know, Joey made me, and after I was a main guy, um, there was a little process for me to become a couple because Joey wanted to do everything orderly. And then Joey says, uh, the deal is you stay with me for two years as a couple, and then you could break off. 
So what I was doing um, was, you know, setting it up to when I broke off with Joey to have my boss and the boss, Consigliere. So I started setting up my uh, family mm. and another list of name of guys that I was going to make, you know, to build a family. But unfortunately, in 99, Joey, both Joey and I got picked up on the same day. And, uh, you know, that kind of ended that. So it never got to fruition. I never, um, the Luisi family never became a real organized crime family. But they did separate us on indictments to the Luisi faction of Boston and the Merlino faction of Philadelphia. So I did have my own faction of Boston of the Bruno Scafo family. So it didn't actually manifest as far as you had intended it to at that time? Exactly. What kind of procedures did a mob go through before they take you in and they put their trust in you? Well, most of, you know, right now, uh, you know, they have to make sure you're loyal, you're trustworthy, right. and you're willing to obey orders. You know, that that's the main thing. What they look for... Now, you got to remember, I was from Boston, and those guys were down in Philly. But Joey had a lot of friends up here. Joey knew what was going on up here like we knew what was going down in Philly. So it wasn't hard for me to transition over. And he knew I just came out of the war, and the war was just winding down at the time. And he knew how vicious it was up here. So I had a reputation. It followed me. Every time he checked, he actually came up here and talked to other May guys in the Patriarca family who actually told them that they were running with me at that time. You know, I, had a, I was dealing with uh, several Patriarca guys. These are guys that I grew up with. They were older guys my father's age, but these are the guys that I grew up with, and uh, I had a good relation with them still. Um, what I did, no one else ever did before. Brought another family in where there was already a sitting family. So I kind of made like mob history with that. It's kind of unheard of, right? Yeah. No, no one ever does that. I could have never did that in the 80s, and if Petriaka was alive, I could have never did that. Did you always you know? trust Joey? Did I always trust Joey? you got to remember, the Philly guys just came off a war. Joey just took over power there. He knew my struggle up here. You know, so it was a pretty good match for us to get together. And um, I knew that Joey had no ties to this new crew up in Boston. See, uh, you know, deals could be made. You could go to another city. They're telling you everything's okay. Then you could end up in a meeting and not come out. But I didn't feel that problem with Joey or Philadelphia. You know, we were both growing together. Did you have any kind of relationship with Whitey Bolger? Not at all. Nothing. No. See, Whitey, you know, he had his little crew with Stevie and all of that. Flemmy. Uh, Whitey wasn't a May guy. He meant nothing to me. Now, Whitey himself was a bad guy. I'm not taking that away from him. He killed a lot of people. Mm. Treacherous guy. You know, bad guy. But uh, no, I never had any dealings with him. Uh, I believe they took off like 94, 95 around that time, so I was already on the street, I was already already establishing myself, already a proposed guy in the Patriarca family at that time. At that time, the war was still going on, and uh, like I said, I chased after some of his people. Crazy. I had no regards for him, I didn't care about him. 
Where do you think the biggest misconception is people have of YT Bojo? Well, the thing here is, uh, you know, even when the Irish Wars went on here in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, Raymond Patriarca stopped all of that. He started them and he stopped them. The Italians had the power here. Um, they make it like Whitey Bulger was the boss of Boston. Right. It's just ridiculous. What happened when uh, I got arrested, they told me that uh, I was the top guy in the state they wanted. They only want the Whitey Bulger more because of the FBI and Connolly. That's what made Whitey famous outside of Boston. So everybody just assumed that he was some type of big boss up here. Got you. Now, like I said before, Whitey was a gangster, dangerous guy. His crew was dangerous, but he was no boss of Boston up here. Now to new details about notorious gangster Whitey Bulger's death. The body of the Boston crime boss turned FBI informant found in his jail cell. Authorities believe he was murdered just hours after arriving at this West Virginia prison. Prison. ABC's Jill Benitez in Massachusetts with more. Good morning, Gio. Hey there, Michael. Good morning to you. Yeah, this building behind me, it's now a church, but it used to be a body shop, the former headquarters of Bulger's gang. So many victims. And this morning, as they hear this news, they're breathing a sigh of relief. This morning, a violent end to a turbulent and criminal life. The notorious Boston gangster Whitey Bulger, who had a role in at least 11 murders, killed in a West Virginia prison, found dead at 8.20 Tuesday morning, just hours after he had been transferred to the prison. Police radio capturing the mayhem. You're going to be responding to the maximum security. They have uh, CPR in progress. Now the question, was the killing a mob hit? An investigation is underway. Bulger was serving a life sentence after spending 16 years on the run with his girlfriend until their capture in 2011. His infamous nickname, Whitey, a reference to his light hair. He spent time in Alcatraz, but returned to Boston to continue his life of crime. In 1994, a corrupt FBI agent tipped Bulger off, telling him he was about to be indicted. He disappeared. It's a story made for Hollywood. Johnny Depp playing Bulger in Black Mass. Just saying could get you buried real quick. And Jack Nicholson's character in The Departed, based on his story. You got something you wanna ask me? Authorities spending more than a decade searching for him. Surveillance video leading to dead ends. They even released a recording of his voice. How you doing? Did he have any sandwiches? Until investigators found his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, arresting him at a Santa Monica apartment. The arrests mark the end of a long and exhaustive hunt for one of America's most wanted men. Now some of the families of his victims... I knew this day was going to come and I knew this was going to happen. It's like surreal. ...are reacting to his death like this widow. Now that he's dead, his name goes away and he goes away with it. Couldn't be a better thing. And now this morning, Bulge's attorney is pointing the finger at the Federal Bureau of Prisons, saying they turned his life sentence into a death sentence. Michael? All right, thank you, Gio. Hi, everyone. George Stephanopoulos here. Thanks for checking out the ABC News YouTube channel. If you'd like to get more videos, show highlights, and watch live event coverage, click on the right over here to subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to download the ABC News app for breaking news alerts. You mentioned the FBI. Can you talk about facing a drug charges in 99 with Joey Molino, which you went to trial twice for? I went twice, yes, I did. How did that go? Uh, not good.
Not good. Uh, first time I went to trial, I got uh, 235 months. In, uh, in 2005 or six, they changed the guidelines here in uh, the United States with the drug trafficking and everything, and uh, I won an appeal. I was the first one to overturn a case, a drug case in Boston, for a circuit. I won the appeal. I went back in, uh, to trial again. I lost again, but they had to take four points off of my guideline for leadership. Right. You know, because uh, the first time I went to trial, like I said, they separated the indictments to Joey's faction and my faction so they could get us both on leadership. What my lawyer did on the second trial is combined it, and Joey was the boss. So you could only have one boss. So just for that simple reason, you know, they knocked my sentence down to 15-8. And you but, served 13.9? Uh, like 13.9, yep. Right, right. How much money do you have when you go to jail at this point? Well, my money was on the street. You know, my wife had money. We had a beautiful home, cars, everything. You know, but at that point, you know, I did 14 years. My wife had to live. When I... Uh, Got arrested. They decided to all go down to Florida. My mother wanted to go down there. My my wife bought a condo down in Florida, and you know the money didn't last long. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when you're in prison, nobody wants to pay. So, and what was that experience like? Because of course it wasn't your first time in jail. How did that experience, you know, compare to your previous times in jail? Well, thank God in my life. Uh, we always had politicians and friends, and my father uh, a few times had to get me out of a few jams with some of the politicians. Um, you know, gun charge, larceny charges, different things, small things. I've always been arrested for nothing big. That was the first big arrest of my life. So I've done four days a week. I haven't done long times before that. I mean, you've referred to yourself as a diehard gangster, you know, in those earliest days. What are your biggest regrets from those earliest days? Really, my only regrets from all of that and all the bad things that we did was just selling drugs to people. I see the effect on it now in the United States. You know, a lot of it's heroin and fentanyl, which I didn't deal with, but there's still a lot of problems with people with cocaine. You know, that's my biggest regret is all the drugs that we sold here. You know, I don't care if it's cocaine, heroin, whatever it is, it's still bad pills. That's, you know, that's my biggest regret. I can't really talk about uh, the things that happened in the war and the people that got killed. You know, but when you're causing Ostro, um, you know, we consider people like you civilians. You know, we're part of something, you know, and uh, we did what we had to do to survive. Uh, Those people were in their life, too. I never heard anybody, uh, you know, Joe Blow, a civilian, I've never heard in my life, you know, so um, I don't have any regrets about that. I'm alive and that's what's important. Absolutely. Now, there's this notion that the life is a fin of the past and it is a different world, of course, now where the mafia doesn't exist. Is there still organized crime happening among a hierarchy of Italian-American families? Is that still a fin? It's still a thing. The mafia is still out there. It's never going to be as strong as it was uh, in the early days, right up even till the 80s, you know. Like I said, uh, the 90s was a bloody time for Boston, Philadelphia, 
even in New York with the Colombo family. Um, but after that, I think once the year 2000 hit, I mean, it just doesn't have the caliber of people anymore. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. You go to New York, Philly, there's still good guys there. There's still good guys in Boston, my friend. But it's never going to be like the old timers. Because an Austria is never going to be the same. What was the turning point in you realizing you wanted a different life than the life you had? Well, something, I had a spiritual experience in uh, 1998, about 15 months before I went arrested. I got arrested. I, what I say, when arrested, I'm sorry. Uh, 15 months before I got arrested, and um, this thing lasted for a while. Um, I realized the evil that I was doing, the way that I was living, and uh, it turned my life around. You know, I accepted Christ that night. I'll tell you, it was March uh, 28, 1998. And after that, with a bodyguard, I was going to church every week. My mother had a church in East Boston. Uh, you know, we're we, we non-denominational. We all speak in tongues and all of that, you know. And uh, I started going to church. I started to seek uh, why this happened to me. I wanted answers. And, um, you know, sometimes when the truth hits you in the face and you realize what you're doing, uh, you know, you got to change. And that night changed my life. By the time I got picked up in 99, I was happy. I figured I'm going to do my 10, 12 years, whatever it is, and that's it. I'm going to retire. I don't want this life no more. So being arrested was actually like a break for me, if you can understand that. Absolutely. It was a way to get out of the life for me. Absolutely. And you created that change yourself. And not everybody yes, can experience the same change that you experienced. Do you have hope for people who uh, go to jail and hope that they can change like you've changed? You know, I, I hope I have that hope for a lot of people. You know, Christ forgave me. He washed that blood off my hands. You know, I broke every commandment. I was a murderer, extortionist, drug dealer. There's nothing that I didn't do, you know, and he forgave me. So there's hope for everybody. You know, there really is. There's really hope for everybody. While I was in prison, I started teaching. Uh, I got a degree in theology. I wrote a book. Uh, it's up on Amazon right now, God's Plans Revealed. Uh, it could be purchased on Amazon. I think I've sold several to the U.K. or more. And, um, you know, uh, right now, even when I do my show, the Bobby Luisi show, uh, it's funny because last Wednesday, you know, we talk mob stuff. We talk about everything. And a lot of people were sending in Scripture, looking for answers for different things. You know, it was something. And... Uh, you know, I, I just feel that seeking Christ is much better than seeking La Cosa Nostra. I'd rather be handing out Bibles than guns. I'll tell you that much, my friend. <laughs> you know, so. um, and was there ever a point um, while you were a part of the mob where you wanted to quit? Um, I'm thinking about specifically the restaurant shooting. Did you think about quitting after that happened? No, really. That only made me stronger. Really? Yeah, it really did. You know, we were out the next day, and I started grabbing my father's stuff, whatever he had out there. To me, it's business, my friend. Just business. We're all gangsters. Were you worried? No, not at all. I was strong then. Okay. I had my own crew. I didn't really deal with my father. Let's talk about crew. Do you have friends from that life today still? Do you keep in touch with many people from that time? Yeah, actually, Paul Tanzo... And he's my partner on the show. 
that we okay. do. Uh, he's a made guy. He was from my crew. Um, there's several captains that were around, uh, 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 what, Paulie, two, three times a week? Yeah. Yeah, very close friends from the old days. You know, uh, yeah, it's something. See, you know the problem, it's not a problem, but, you know, cause and loss is bred into most of us. And it's a way of life to us. And we still respect who's a May guy, and, you know, it's always going to be like that. As much as I love Christ, that's still in my heart. Not the violence anymore, you know, but that's still in my heart. And I grew up with that my whole life. And I made close friends in Cousin Ostro. And those are the friends that I really have now, you know. Well, it's a long shot, but I don't know if you're able to have Paulie talk about his experiences and your friendship growing up. Is he able to talk about that for a few moments? Yes, he is, and he's right here. He's going to come and sit down right now. <laughs> Perfect. Paulie, come on, Paulie. Hold on, here he is. Hey, hello. How are you doing, Paulie? Pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, How are you feeling tonight? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, good. I was behind the scenes. Bobby just pulled me over here. Laying low. Yeah, no, he does this to me all the time. He, he knows I'm. He knows I get camera shy. He drags me over. You know, I'm I'm dressed in like house clothes, just hanging around. Oh, the camera's not on. Oh, all right. Yeah, then you can't even think. No, I'm just hanging around in house clothes. You know, setting up, making sure everything's running okay. You know, and I'm watching him do the show. Nice. But I'm um, yeah, nice. I'm the only one that stayed loyal to Bobby. So talk about those earlier days with Bobby. What was that like? Um. It, it, uh, it was a good time and a bad time. Um, uh, basically, you know, good friend of mine back then, and, you know, my partner, he just got pinched. You, you know what I mean? It's just when I first started hanging around with Bobby, and he went away on cocaine charges, and Bobby, you know what I mean? I took out, I had my own business, but I also took over that business. You know, but I always took care of the guy. You stood by each other over the years, and it's evident through this relationship I can hear you both have now over the phone. What are some of your favorite memories with Bobby? Oh, we have, I, I this. There's so many funny stories I could tell you when we're out with Bobby. Let's you talk know. about them. Uh, what are the ones I always get him with? You know, because uh, he, he gets the biggest kick out of it. We all went out to a strip club one night. You know, okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down farther away and, you know, letting the other guy sit up there. I usually run security, you know what I mean? I can't get it out of my head. He still yells at me today because the way I go out of the house looking around and stuff, you know? So he's calling me over, and he's like, go give that stripper 50 bucks. And I'm, yeah, yeah, give it to me. And he's giving me the 50s, and I'm putting them in my pocket, and then I'm giving the stripper less money. So at the end of the night, I, we walk out of the club, and he's looking at me, and I'm counting all these 50s. He's like, where'd you get all that money? I says, it's all yours. I taxed you for every time you made me walk to the stage. <laughs> so everybody started laughing. <laughs> everybody started laughing. You know, that's one of the stories we remember the best. We talk about that all the time. That's great. Either that or he talks about how every, every time I gave him an envelope, it was empty. <laughs> there was an IOU in it. <laughs> He's like, I couldn't make a dollar with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. One end of the other, but yeah. we we, we did it good, you know. 
but like, that's how it was, you know. There was a lot of laughs and stuff. I mean, we'd all go out and eat together, you know. Friday nights, here we all go out for dinner. There's, you know, 12, 15 of us, you know, having the time of our life. And, you know, I don't think anybody was looking that far ahead, but I used to look around and I used to be like, wow, someone's not going to be here Monday, you know, for whatever reason. You know, old age, that murdered, pinched, you know what I mean? And uh, it was like happening every weekend. It, it was insanity, you know, like it's like musical chairs. You just you don't know when the music's going to stop, and you hope you have a chair. But that means one of your friends ain't going to have one, you know. It does its uh, downpoints, so. We, we were talking about the transition the mob went through so many years ago and how that dis- dissolving kind of impacted the way things happened. How do you remember and reflect on that uh, transition of the mob and how it changed back then personally? What are your memories of that transition? I remember like, growing up, and I'm a couple of years younger than Bobby, but growing up, you know, going and hanging at the playgrounds and everything, the, the, the kids were always safe. Uh, all, the old-timers really did keep the drugs off the streets. You know, they didn't start hitting heavy until the 80s. And uh, then it just went wild. Everybody was just cocaine cowboys. But before, there was always three, four guys on every, any corner. You had a problem. You know what I mean? Someone was picking on you or something. They, one of them guys would say something and everything would stop dead, you know? And summertime, you know, like we have our own North End pool, and it's it's famous for everybody down there because, you know, we used to call them the pool mothers. And every day, everybody's mother and father's down the pool except mine, and I could never understand it. Like, you know what I mean? My parents had jobs. Everybody else down there, no one had jobs, you know? So I grew up being around them, more than I did with my own family. Marriage, or any partnership for that matter, is a give and a take. We are a family. So we're going to deal with this as a family. All due respect, you got no fucking idea what it's like to be number one. Puss, don't let anyone ever make you feel like you don't have any options, because you got friends. Friends that would die for you. Any thoughts at all on why you blacked out? I don't know. Stress, maybe. Is everybody in my life bananas or what? I got problems at work. I got problems at home. Oh, for you. Kill me now. Stab me now, please. You are his mother. And I don't think for one second that you don't know what you're doing to him. Grandma just called me. Started crying and hung up. So what, no fucking ZD now? Hey! I'm not getting any satisfaction from my work either. What line of work are you in? Waste management consultant. You may run North Jersey, but you don't run your uncle Joe. Just when they thought I was out, they pull me back in. <laughs> Our true enemy has yet to reveal himself. I warn you, do not do it! How do you feel about the Americanization of the mob with, you know, popular culture, TV and, and film, films like, you know, Sopranos and such? Sopranos, the Bronx Tale. Um, right. Um, I, I'll tell you the truth. I think Bronx Tale is probably like the closest to the real life you know, that I remember anyways, you know, with clubs on every corner. I mean, during Saturday Night Fever came out, bang, next thing you know, Bobby's father's running the Charter Club, and it's set up like Studio 54, you know? 
And here I am, I'm in the seventh, eighth grade, and we got the club till eight o'clock, crystal ball, lights going on the floor, <laughs> you know. So it was kind of weird. And I know my father's coming home, and he's working two jobs, and he constantly cursing, you know, because I'm out there having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> So you guys got the show, of course, the Bobby Luisi show. Talk about the show and when that show is. What can people expect that do want to check it out? Um, we do a lot of different things. Uh, Bob, Bobby knows uh, a real lot of people uh, from the amount of time he did and uh, the people I met through the life and stuff like that. And we get as uh, many guests as we can. We reach out to even people we don't know. We've made a lot of friends. Um, you know, they talk a lot of stuff. Uh you know, uh, we won't go, like, down the neighborhood and stuff like that. So I did a few walk around the neighborhoods with me getting my hair cut and chopping and how I still down there every day, you know. So I let them know, like, you know how it is. You get the people who call in the trolls and they just want to make comments. You know, someone's lunch money you took in the eighth grade or something, <laughs> you know, or you gave them a bad nickname. So they, they hit us with a few comments every once in a while. So I go, I go do my walk arounds. And uh, one of my best friends and uh, another uh, young man that grew up with Bobby's family is Father Michael Delapena, who runs the parish down there. You know, and uh, I go by the parish all the time. I'm down there, I'm always asking for him. He's usually really busy. And uh, what an addition to have! Like, not only did he grow up across the street from the church, he's now head of the parish. You know, uh, great stories down there. There's so many of them. That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune. When I'm back on top, back on top in June, I said... I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people saw you with me where you were.